Hey, you're listening to Rock and or Roll, part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. I'm BJ, and on this episode, we're going to continue with the Power Pop series. For this episode, you're going to hear interviews I conducted with Brent Hode, who was in a Kansas City Power Pop band called The Secrets, with an asterisk, and they released one self-titled album on a label called Wi-Fi, and that record came out in 1982. And then we're going to hear from Jeff Root from a Boston band called Hot Dates who released a great self-titled power pop album and I think it's interesting to hear the stories of bands like these how these bands came together how they ended up performing this style of music how they managed to get a record out and these are two high quality well-produced well-written well-performed records that were released basically independently, but both of these records by both of these bands stand right up there with any of the other high-quality power pop albums from this era. So I hope you enjoy this episode about The Secrets and Hot Dates. Well, so how did the how did the secrets begin? How did it all get started? There's a guy named Gary Apple who lives here in town, and he uh, he had been uh, kind of a country rock singer. He had a record deal with uh, Mercury, which existed at the time from Nashville. So they wanted him to tour, and um, so he had to put together a band. I can't remember how I met him, but I, I think it was through a drummer who was uh, the original guy who uh, joined that band. But uh, I, I think he lasted maybe one or two gigs. We opened for Patty Smith at the Uptown, and uh, we bought her big bouquet of roses, actually. She was just sweet as can be. So uh, he had to put this band together. So we got me. I think Norm joined after the second gig, maybe. And then Kevin Davis, who was the lead guitar player for a long time. Who else do we have? Oh, it Pat Tomic on the drums. So we went on a tour the record company paid for, and we had a pretty big motor home, and uh, they sent us up and down the East Coast. And then uh, I think the budget, the tour budget ran out. So we stop getting our salary so we just got together and saying hey you know we could have a real nice little self-contained four-piece here start recording in norm's garage over it's right around the corner from bb's lawn side which was dangerous so we started working up songs covers and 
originals started coming in with some originals and um is this like the mid 70s no this is like uh yeah it would have been like 77 okay 78 mm-hmm. somewhere around there late 70s had a couple of uh wannabe booking agents started getting us gigs and uh we got good you know and uh titan we'd always known those guys for a long time because they were fans of uh, Millionaire at Midnight. That was the band I was in before right. that. Right. That was a crazy band. We were kind of like the tubes. Mm-hmm. You know, we had extras and props and stuff like that. But by the time the gig was over, the club was just uh, a mess. You know, Cheerios all over the floor and wiffle ball golf balls I would hit out in the crowd, <laughs> you know. <laughs> kind of got on that circuit that we'd had before shortly after that we did a deal with titan and uh, started recording those two that are on the single i think maybe we recorded two other ones at the same time and i can't remember which ones but those guys did a pretty good job of uh, promoting stuff locally you know getting reviews and you know like trouser press casey star you know all that stuff you know, people bought that single, probably had a trunk load of them somewhere in somebody's car, selling the gigs and got some radio play. album that went to number nine in in wichita as our claim to fame you know mm-hmm. and um here's a good story this would have been about 1979 i guess we played two we opened two shows uh for pat benatar as our managers at the time also booked concerts so they had us open at the uptown forum and in some place in uh, wichita the Uptown show was the first one. So we played that show. A couple days later, we go to Wichita and play the other gig. Come back home. About two or three days later, 
the Wichita Police Department calls, calls our office. Some woman had uh, been raped. She called the police and told her these guys, uh, it happened in a van, I guess, told the police that these guys had done this and they told them uh, they were the secrets. They told her they were the secrets. So anyway, I was in the office when they called or I called them back or something. They they said the date of this uh, event and uh, that was the date we were playing at the Uptown. So so we had an alibi, you know, because yeah. it was at night, you know, and uh, so I hope they caught the guys. But uh, anyway, um, that tells you how famous we were in Wichita, right? <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know if these guys knew who we were or just grabbed the, grabbed the name out of a newspaper or something like that. Yeah, we did that one bar down there, the Coyote Club. We played there every six weeks for six years, four nights a week. And like Wednesday and Thursday were dead. So we would work up new material and stuff on, on those nights. And uh, then by the weekend, we were exhausted, but that was when it was packed. A lot of kind of fun, weird memories from that that time. Yeah. Let me see. What else can I tell you? Guy that owned this label called Wi Fi. Yeah. <laughs> you know, as in why. Yeah. Um English guy, Paul forgot his last name. Really nice guy. He uh came to see his play. He he came all the way over to uh see his play live down in uh Pittsburgh, Kansas. He was so thrilled to be able to walk out on the street and stand on Route 66. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it it goes across the very little corner of Kansas. But anyway, we played, and uh, the next day he made us an offer, and he knew Greg, Greg Penny, the guy who did the Ricky Lee Jones records and so forth, and called and. Uh, Offered him the job of producing, and he said, uh, well, I've been working with Stan Lynch. Why don't we uh, do it together, you know? Shortly after that, the Heartbreakers played at uh, Municipal Auditorium, and we went down and uh, we had lunch with Stan, and then uh, we went to the gig that night and went to kind of a wild party across the street at the Holiday Inn and afterwards hung out with the band and all that. And we already had the deal then. We we were just schmoozing. So that's how we got to know each other. The chemistry was good and uh, we had fun. Pinball machine in the studio or a video game. Astro Blaster or something like that. The old uh-huh. one. So that's how we got to know each other. I saw Stan a couple of times uh, when I moved out there. But they were really on the road a lot and so i didn't really get to hang with him much out there i saw him more of course when we were in the studio and you recorded in la you said right yeah our our secret stuff we did except for the stuff we did at uh chuck chapman's Mm -hmm. i never even knew of anything else that was on that label wi-fi but recently i know i saw that 
one of the at least one of the Sparks records they released probably just in Europe. Yeah, right. Yeah. Swamp that sucker. Right. right? Is that the one? Yeah. That's one of those. I always yeah. love that band. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So your the Secrets record is, in my opinion, it's really a classic power pop record. But how okay. did you feel? Did you were you guys happy with how it turned out with the production and everything? Thought the mix was okay. Uh, I wasn't happy with the mastering because I think it got compressed mm-hmm. too much, so it didn't crackle like it should have. The Titan stuff was, even though it had less of a budget, it 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 was mastered better. But we didn't take as much time with that in the actual recording. Yeah, I thought the uh, the LP. Uh, was mixed well and good performances and um but the mastering flattened everything out a little bit no big deal you know if it had crackled a little more uh on the master it would have sounded better on the radio Mm -hmm. because the radio radio stations compress their signal a lot so they don't harm their equipment and trans transmitters and stuff like that and plus they, they all try to make themselves louder than everybody else so it would have sounded better on the radio if they given it some air and let those radio stations have something to grab you know the, the peaks and stuff like that if compressors have something to grab i'm getting kind of weird here but uh then your record sounds better coming out of the radio. You got to compress it a little bit, but not much.
there was obviously there there were tons of bands for a few years there. There was this whole kind of a power pop craze kind of thing that was going on, obviously. Yeah. And I wonder mm-hmm. for a band like you, were was there a conscious effort to make a certain kind of record? Or or was it more organic or was it a mixture of of that? I think it was just an accident. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it was uh just our tastes coincided, you know, and we we all had a history of you know, listening to the Beatles and the Stones and the Kinks and all that stuff. And that just came out, you know, when we, especially when we started writing stuff. But we play uh, oddball stuff like the Mills Lofgren first solo album stuff. I love that. And, uh, yeah, yeah, it's great. And, and um, what else do we do? That's one of the best ones I can. Yeah, like I, can I don't want to know. And the sun exactly. hasn't set on this boy yet. Those songs are so great. Yeah, Keith, don't go. Yeah, yeah. We did uh, back it up. Yeah. So what happens I, after I your it. record comes out then? Mm. You did the not you know, much. <laughs> yeah, not much. It, it didn't. Yeah. I mean, the late. What was the label? What did the label even do? I mean, was there, was there much that the label had to offer in terms uh, of promotion and stuff like that? Well, since uh, everybody that was behind us from RCA uh, was gone, yeah, you know, they all gone to other labels or. Uh, replaced you know you got to have somebody that's your champion within the company yeah so it was just one of those deals happens all the time because when we recorded it we had to wait almost two years before they put it out because they changed uh management and everything and rca got bought by someone so the new people that came in just dragged their feet and they Signed Bob Welch or somebody like that. So uh, they gave him, they pushed the button on his and they let our masters sit around. But uh, that's just the way things are. And I'm glad, I'm glad people can make their own records and put them out now, even though they don't get paid. Well, what would you like to know about uh, the history? I'd like to hear the whole story, whatever you want to tell. I mean, you just cleared something up because I was. You know, one thing that was confusing is why there was a couple of years there between when your single came out, when your record came out, but now you just cleared that yeah. up that it sat, it, it sat it, there. It, it, yeah, we kind of were disillusioned, you know, with uh, the music business and that, that kind of the rot set in, you know, because, you know, you do all that work and then somebody lets it on the shelf and you don't own the master's. So you can't sell it to some other label. And um, when I moved to L.A., I uh, went to see the producer. um, Greg Penny and Stan Lynch were the producers. Stan Lynch from the Heartbreakers. Right. And um, Greg uh, had done some uh, stuff with Ricky Lee Jones. But uh, he had the master tapes in a closet in his house. And... um, for a while, we were thinking about remixing it, you know, remastering it or something, but uh, never got around to it. And I think he moved because he only lived a few blocks away from me. It was fun 
recording, you know, Michael Jackson was doing overdubs across the hall. And so we bumped into him quite a bit and Quincy Jones. Were they working on <laughs> Thriller? I think it was the one before Thriller. Off the Wall. What was that one called? Off the Wall. Yeah, that, yeah it would have been Off the Wall. That probably yeah. came out in, I think that came out in 79. Um, off the Wall did? I think so. I don't know. Was that would be crazy if, it, if they were working on... Th- what studio were you at? Westlake. In, uh, it was on Beverly Boulevard. Uh-huh. And uh, there was a restaurant across the street from our hotel. And we would go in there to eat sometimes. And a few times we saw him in there. And he would he would just get up out of his booth and uh, dance. You know, like he'd have some kind of idea or something and uh-huh. so like it was before all the the cool dance moves he was doing you know of course we we weren't really paying attention but it was it was insane you know he'd jump up and just do a little 30 second dance routine and get back down and just finish his omelet or whatever oh yeah it looks like they did off the wall all the way up until june of 79 and westlake is listed on Wikipedia is one of the studios. Yeah. Okay. Maybe they were in there mixing or something. I don't. Yeah. I don't know what wow. they were. So yeah. were you recording in '79? Is that when you were recording your record there? I think it was '80. '80. Probably '80. Yeah. Yeah. It might be on the label or something, but uh, mm-hmm. well, heck, it might have been Thriller. There was somebody in there working with him. I don't recall, but uh, I remember they hauled in their own huge uh console just for mixing headphones <laughs> <laughs> you know it, it was bigger than the the main console in there that uh they they used to mix so um they're probably just doing overdubs or maybe demos or maybe remixes or yeah could have you know you you might be right it might have been just demos yeah. so um but that was crazy <laughs> yeah, that is crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We had a lot of fun with those guys. You know, we got to hang with the Heartbreakers, some, and um, Stan, of course, great drummer, great guy. Well, you had a great scene that you were a part of, like with um, the boys. I, I love the boys and Gary Charlson. And, yeah. Yeah, it was a. Yeah. The boys were from uh, Omaha, I guess, from the Rath Lincoln. Maybe mm-hmm. I think we we played a couple of gigs with him, and uh, of course Gary Charlson. We've been pals for a long time, and uh, who's the other guy? Jimmy. Um, oh yeah, there's, I have that. There's that just another pop album record I have too that Titan put out. Okay, right? Is that Titan? Baby yeah. don't baby don't laugh. That's that's the cool song that he had, and I got to produce that for those guys. So. What do you think of the term power pop? Do you are you aware of like power the, pop? Yeah, are you aware of like the whole cult of power pop fans and everything? Yeah, yeah. And I know there's a lot of. I think we've sold a lot of stuff in Japan. Yeah, yeah. You know, there was there's um, people that eat that stuff up. You know, yeah. my favorite power pop band was Cheap Trick. Yeah, that's my favorite or, band um, of all time. <laughs> Yeah. Really? Yeah. Okay. I'm actually yeah, writing a book. we get to hang out with those guys a lot. Are you? You did? About, about Cheap Trick? Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, they used to, uh, we used to play the blue note in Columbia a lot. And those guys, if they had a gig around, they would come down and see us after their gig. Mm-hmm. You know, and we were taking kinks requests and stuff like that from those guys. <laughs> <laughs> the first time I saw them, it was uh, at uh, Memorial Hall, and they opened for the kinks. Mm-hmm. So, in uh, the kinks, you want to be an opening act that's tough, open for the kinks. <laughs> You know, because Kinks fans hate whatever opening act is there and just take enough time, you know, mm-hmm. till the Kinks can come on. But uh, that's a, one of my favorite bands, too. Yeah, yeah. One of my top five. Yeah, I got into collecting Power Pop in the 90s. And, uh, you know, back before the Internet, it was kind of like you just find shit, you know, and then you find yeah. out about it through. I don't know, mm-hmm. I would read old Trouser Press magazines, and so I don't know where I even got the oh, secrets man. from. Yeah. But I remember mm-hmm. I had a friend, I was in Madison, Wisconsin, I had a friend in Minneapolis who would go, if I had, if I, there was something I was looking for, the record stores were better in Minneapolis, and he would go look for me, and I remember, oh, yeah. I sent right. him, I said, you know, you gotta look for this record by The Secrets. <laughs> I guess she would have called by ten And now there's nothing left to do But go and blame it on myself again Every car down the block And every knock at the door I run to my telephone Hoping she'll be there And tell me what you've been up to, baby Won't you just call me up And tell me what went wrong Oh, hey, I know what. We did a bunch of stuff with Kim Fowley. You know, he is. Yeah. 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 He he wrote Alley Oop. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know that's one. Yeah. Anyway, he signed the Runaways. Yeah. And he was doing all these cheap ass record deals uh, with MCA. And so uh, on another trip out there, we did some showcases for him in a rented uh, rehearsal hall in uh, Hollywood. And then we did a couple of gigs down in a bar down on the beach. Made some offer for a five grand advance you know, from MCA. And then it was just one of these deals where he was just making these cheap record deals with uh, with MCA. I think the Runaways were on that. He signed them. So was this after the wife, the Wi-Fi thing was over? No, no. This, oh, this was before, before that. Mm-hmm. Okay. But we, he, he missed that offer and we turned him down. Mm-hmm. So because... He was really weird. He was yeah. kind of control freak. Yeah, it looked like Frankenstein, kind of. <laughs> yeah. Um, he wasn't big like Fred Gwynn, but um, he was he was tall and skinny. Yeah. Kim Fowley, geez. 
he died a while back. I can't remember when, yeah. but, uh, yeah, his, his stage name was spider web. Mm-hmm. He's a, a legend of good or bad, you know, how did he, how did he find out about you? How did he, how did you come on his radar? Um, I'm not sure. Okay. Um, I don't know. Maybe he heard the single or he heard a demo of something. Anyway, he calls me at three o'clock in the morning. I think our manager gave my number. He says, you are the John Fogarty of the eighties. <laughs> <laughs> you know, talk about flattery, you know, but, uh, and then we, we talked for like, or, or I listened to him talk for like two hours. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, uh, well, okay. Um, yeah. Um, talk to, talk to Marcy, our manager, and, uh, she'll do the arrangements and so forth and we'll come out and see you. So that was that deal. That was the weirdest phone call I've ever had. Kim <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Fowley calls you at three o'clock in the morning. You know, I think he took a break in the middle of it. He said, hang on, I got to go do my B12 shot. <laughs> <laughs> is he uh, he would take a b12 shot every day <laughs> you already had a manager and but he, yeah because because he also tried to get his hooks and cheap trick so he was always around and he was always trying to, to insinuate himself with you know right right yeah well cheap trick had a manager that forgot his name now and he just worked the piss out of that band yeah ken adam you know um, yeah ken adam yeah and uh he overworked him but it was just tour 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 you know and then a week off to do the record and then back you know oh, yeah. um yeah i'm glad they survived <laughs> all that you know great guys though really really cool guys Midwestern guys from Rockford. Yeah. Have you heard that record? It's called Rockford. I love that record. Yeah. It's great. It's great, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. I love it. Yeah. Well, so how did the secrets end then? What was the, how long did you last after the uh, record? We we played about six years. I think we, we played maybe three to four years uh, after we did the record. Let me see here. Um, Shooting Star, you know those guys? Yeah. Their bass player quit, I guess, or semi-retired. And they uh, they got this deal to do a couple of songs for a movie called I'm Up the Creek. Yeah, Cheap Trick. Cheap Trick did the song Up the Creek. Yeah, they were on it, yeah. And uh, so... Shooting Star got the offer to do uh, one or two songs, I guess, and they didn't have the bass players, so they asked Norm to play. So he went out there, and then uh, during that time, they asked him to join. Mm-hmm. And so he uh, he came back and said, "That's the way he wants to go," you know. Yeah. And um, not a bad career move, you know. 
I think the the one thing I haven't asked you about is the asterisk that you have on the name. Is that was that your solution because there were other bands called the Secrets or? Oh well, we didn't know that at the time. But what's your problem with the asterisk? <laughs> I was just wondering. <laughs> well, I know there was an Australian band called the Secrets. I know about at least, but you know, with names yeah, like that back several, in the seventies and eighties, yeah. <laughs> there was always mm-hmm. bands. Yeah, there was lots of bands. But, right. um, it's it's just kind of a head head scratcher conversation starter you right. know that stuck you know i guess it set us apart from those other bands i believe that uh i can't remember how we came up with that crazy idea but we should put a, a asterisk as, after every song on the back uh on the track list yeah <laughs> well i thought it was a fun you know that you'll, you'll see you've got like the english beat or you'll have bands that had to add UK to the end of their name, right. stuff like that. And right. I thought the asterisk right. was a was another solution. Mm-hmm. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain here. You caught me just finishing up some editing on Getting Real with John and Beth. I want to share my first experience with Factor Meals for you. I think you'll find this interesting because I bet the same thing happens to you. I had just received my first shipment from Factor Meals the other day, and I was excited to try one of the prepared restaurant-quality meals for myself. Anyway, I was working away and noticed it was very late, and it was my night to make dinner. I jumped up and headed to the kitchen, went to grab the ingredients for the dish I was going to make, and realized I was missing a prime ingredient. Well, I could make a run to the store, or I could make one of my new Factor meals. <laughs> Actually, the choice was easy. I grabbed a cavatappi, an Italian-style pork ragu with garlic broccoli, heated the oven per instructions, and minutes later was enjoying a very delicious, nutritious, and dietitian approved meal. It really was everything Factor Meals said it would be. No prep, no mess meals. Factor Meals are 100% ready to heat and eat. Take it from me and head to factormeals.com slash pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. That's factormeals.com slash Pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain again with something every podcast listener and music junkie needs to hear. As I'm sure you can guess, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I also listen to a lot of music, so having high-quality headphones and earbuds are absolutely critical to my day. Oh, and I have numerous pairs. In fact, I have a junk drawer of used devices that have bitten the dust, so I've tried them all. Recently, I was sent a pair of earbuds by Raycon, and the first thing I noticed was the cost. Uh, Looks like their products are about half the price of other premium brands. Okay, that's cool. And the reviews seem pretty stellar. Okay, checks that box. So I got my Raycon Everyday Earbuds, a nice packaging to open, and what I immediately noticed were the pack of ear tips for sizing. Uh, I'll tell you, I have small ear canals. Uh, I know, a flaw. So to see choices for the best fit, uh, especially while exercising, uh, oh yeah. And yes, they were immediately comfortable. Sound quality was great too. Plus I have three EQ options that I love because I like more bass in my music and less in the podcasts. 
Eight hours of playtime for the battery is great as well. Surround sound, noise canceling, and awareness mode all included. I think I'm in business, and I just realized I've had them in all day. Like I said, super comfortable. Go to buyraycon.com slash Pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash Pantheon. like to hear the the whole story the story of of how the band formed and and how you did your sound develop or was, was this the kind of of band that you started out to be well yeah it's interesting we actually um well, bob millette and i uh, he goes by rob now and uh, grant clark were all from littleton and uh, we had been doing some recordings uh prior to the Boston scene becoming so uh, vital and, and happening and before we actually took a step into it. I guess it was uh, 1978. I moved out of my parents' place and um, went to the place down in Natick because we were spending a lot more time with each other. We, we thought, well, why don't we... Um, pull together a band and try to catch the coattails of all of this new wave stuff that's happening in Boston. And so um, we put together a band. At the time, I had been working with uh, some comedians, uh, one in particular, a guy named Martin Olson, who's a writer for cartoons like Phineas and Ferb and Rocco's Modern Life. And he and I also grew up in Littleton. And so I had these two interests. There was a guy, and I've forgotten his name, that wanted to put together a show that involved comedy and music. And so the first thing we did was uh, Grant and I pulled together two other guys to get a band together that could actually perform. And then we started uh, working with uh, Stephen Wright, who uh, is the the famous stand-up comedian. He had just graduated from the media college in Boston. So we were an ill-fated comedy music group uh, that performed a couple times at a place called the Spring Street Saloon, which later became the Ding Hall Comedy Club in in, uh, Cambridge. So anyways, that was how we started in the summer of 78. And then uh, we decided, well, this comedy 
thing is not working. Why don't we just break away and just do a band? So we we decided to um, kind of hone the arrangements and all to be a little bit more punky. Bob had a, a short haircut or something, and we decided we were going to jump in on that whole scene. We added in kind of the, the power pop formula uh, that we all kind of liked, you know, rock and roll with, with more of a, a heavy pop sound uh, crafted to it and combined it a little bit with a lot of the punky elements that were going on at the time. And that's kind of how the band came together. And then, of course, playing with other bands in the uh, Boston scene at the time, you pick up lots of tricks and directions and styles and all of that <clears throat> from other bands in the scene at the time. So all of that, you know, played a, a big part of influencing what our sound was. I think it was a couple of years, um, maybe a year, of doing uh, eight-track demos at a little place in Wayland when we uh, finally caught the attention of um, Wayne Wadhams, who was um, uh, a producer and who had had uh, a couple of hits of his own in the 60s with a, a band called The Fifth Estate. <clears throat> he liked some of the tunes and, and decided he wanted to put together an LP, actually a, a single at first. So we recorded a, a single that um, was number one in Boston uh, called Tune In To Me which is the, the first track on the second side of the LP. decided on the success of that to make a complete record. And so instead of using the track demos, uh, Wayne Wadhams wanted to re-record them at uh, Studio B, which was a better class um, studio. So we, we put together the, the rest of the record there. And that came out, I think, in early 81. So we went down for uh, a bunch of uh, showcases in in Boston, I'm sorry, in New York, for Arister and a couple of other labels. Just about that same time, our drummer, Grant Clark, who I'm still working with and having fun with, we're doing some recordings, had just finished his law degree and decided that he was going to break off and, and don't do that. So that kind of unraveled things for us, uh, you know, right as we were trying to. Um, take the next step. So that was the beginning of the end of uh, Hot Dates. But, you know, for a good four years, we were, you know, crafting music and, uh, you know, doing demos and putting together, you know, the next recordings and all of that. And, you know, pretty vital part of the Boston scene, probably for uh, three and a half years. So that's that's kind of the, the whole story in a quick nutshell there. Yeah. 
how did those comedy shows work? Were you, were, was it a mix it of was, stand-up and the band? Were you, were you, was it, was there no, kind of a theme or a, st- or no? It was insane, really. The guy left us carte blanche to do whatever we saw fit. So um, we were doing our regular tunes um, that, uh, you know, we had worked up before the Hunt Gates really started to build their repertoire. So these were tunes that Bob Millette and Grant and I had been working on. And uh, we just brought them to these other two guys, Mitch and Sam, and, um, you know, had them, you know, replicate what we had done in the studio. So we went in with that as the musical piece and played as a five-piece band. And uh, Stephen Wright and a guy named John Tenike, who also uh, had graduated from uh, Newbury. Is that the name of the college? I'm, 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 that doesn't sound right, but it's, uh, yeah, maybe it is, because it's, it's what was right near Newbury Street. So they, they were there coming up and doing uh, some of their random skits in between songs, you know, as we'd be rearranging or getting another instrument out or something. So it was very loosely concocted and, you know, we'd say, okay, we'll do this song and we'll wear uh, ridiculous costumes and we'll have um, guys in gorilla suits running around with axes and, you know, lots of ridiculous stuff. Uh, Just, you know, for really cheap and burlesque kind of entertainment. And we had dancing girls and singing girls and we had all of that stuff on. So it was more like a burlesque thing that was very loosely structured where everybody said, oh, I can, I can do this, I'll do this. And, and um, nobody was really crafting anything um, meaningful. It was a really bizarre thing. Nobody had figured out what they were doing yet. It was just uh, an opportunity to um, perform in front of a bunch of people. So we did it, I think, twice. And that was that. And we went our separate ways, uh, Stephen Wright went off to uh, the rest of the, the Boston um, comedy scene that was um, building at that time. And I think he went on to the Carson show in 81 or 82. So about the time that the hot dates were about to be signed, he uh, and others from the Boston uh, comedy scene were finally getting recognition on national television. That was how that uh, came to pass. Yeah, it's funny when you said Stephen Wright had just graduated. I was like, did, did he already seem like an old, like old, an old man? Was Stephen Wright ever young? Because he never. It seems like he never was. You know. Yeah, that's that's totally a shtick. Um, yeah, he's he's a very normal guy. He hadn't figured out uh, that shtick yet. He was um, he and John Tenack. Actually, John was more of a go getter and was kind of guiding things at the time. But I think, you know, Stephen off on his own finally lit on this thing of um, deadpan, uh, absurdist jokes, you know, mm-hmm. were a thing that would identify him uniquely. And so he did that. And by the time somebody from the Carson show came and, and viewed the, uh, the comics that were there in Boston, he kind of stood out uh, because he figured that, that thing that was kind of a long shot, but it paid off in the end big time for him, you know? Yeah. But yeah, before that he was just, he was talking like you and I and, uh, 
and hadn't even lit on the fact of using absurdist jokes. He was doing, um, you know, more physical kind of humor and trying all different sorts of things. Uh, and he was very talented and, and fun to work with, but he had definitely not gotten anywhere as close to that comatose figure that he plays. You yeah. Know? Wow. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. So who were the who were some of the other bands like the Real Kids? Were the Real Kids still around when you were? Yeah, on the scene? yeah, they were there. Uh, and the yeah, Rings, the Real Kids, the Rings. They were really good friends of ours. Yeah, uh, we played of our early gigs with them. And uh, Mike Baker, in, in particular, was a, a good friend of mine. And uh, we actually picked up, uh, you know, stole different bits and pieces from each other. One of my um, uh, more popular tunes, Shut Up, uh, was popular live, was actually uh, a riff that I I clipped from them, uh, from one of his songs. Uh, just that rhythmical, da de do do that kind of a... Uh, with them, you know, so I just picked that up and, and wrote the song off of it. on the coattails of the cars. Right. As soon as the cars took off, uh, they were cap and swing just before mm-hmm. um, before they they signed. Uh, they got David Robinson, who I think played with, um, oh my God, I've forgotten the name of the yeah, Modern Lovers band. he was in. Yeah, Modern Lovers, that's right. Yeah. And uh, we actually picked up the drummer uh, that was in Captain Swing before David Robinson took over. Oh, wow. When Grant Clark left us in 82, uh, we got Glenn Evans uh, to drum with us so that we could finish some of our other showcases for the record companies and all. And yeah, it was a, it was a great scene. And, um, you know, lots of little friendships or, or competitional friendships in the, in the dressing rooms and all of that. And, uh, and always a good crowd. I remember the first time we played, I think it was the end of July in 78, uh, we played at the Rat Skeller or the Rat in Kenmore Square. You know, we went down not really knowing what to expect, although we'd been there to see some bands previously. It was always a cool scene. But the uh, the Dead Boys, I think it was, were there. Oh, and, man. Uh, Peter Wolf from um, Jay Giles was there. 
and the Fenway had just, uh, you know, the Red Sox had just finished a game. So all these people just dumped into him. It was, you know, elbow to elbow, uh, packed. Uh, and, you know, the scene was just ridiculously, um, rich and, and, you know, full. And, uh, so it was, it was such a blast to, to play. And it was always really crazy. Everybody was still using the giant amps, you know, so you had the, some of the double stack amps and, uh, big drum sets. And, uh, at the rat, you'd have three bands, uh, each night and each band would play three sets. But they didn't play two sets in a row. They broke down the whole stage and brought up another whole band. So, and it was everything. There was no back line. It was drums, amps, and uh, Granny, the uh, sound person at the time, would just throw, you know, SM58s or 57s up in front of the, the amps as if they needed sound reinforcement. And... Uh, you know, went back to the board and off you went. And it was just, you know, a din of, of loud, loud, loud guitar uh, and drum music uh, with muffled vocals. And um, But it was a blast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was crazy. It was really crazy. I, I um, was laughing with uh, Johnny A. Um, a couple of years ago about it, that, you know, how we used to drag the giant amps up between 30 minute sets, you know, because the next band would go up and, uh, you know, nobody had any common sense about, uh, you know, how much sound was needed. It was all, uh, this is just what you do. You got to have a big amp, you got to, you know, crank it, you know, to 11 and, and, uh, play it, you know, the top decibels that you could. And it was just totally insane, but everybody, everybody did it the same way. So, uh, yeah. And it was kind of cool. I think that summer the the police had come through, so uh, on the jukebox was uh, our first single, uh, "I Can't Stay," uh, that we had just finished, as well as the um, uh, the, the police uh, the police's first record. What was it now? The uh, Roxanne mm-hmm. and uh, Elvis Costello. So it was it was really cool and exciting and. Um, you know, a lot of the the uh, early acts from England uh, were coming through the Rat um, and the Paradise uh, in Boston, and you know they were just starting out as well. So nobody had really made it yet. Somebody, some of them were on record labels with you know very limited tour support. But um, it, it was a wild scene, and I I would say um, there was probably. 20 or 30 different bands that all got record contracts uh, from 78 to 80 uh, on national labels that, you know, had a record out and then it died and then the next one would come out and occasionally, you know, somebody would, would you know, take off. I think it was Till Tuesday, you know, made it big and um, Del Fuegos and uh, there's, there's a bunch of them that, you know, had some staying power. Anyways, it was big fun, yeah.
so the hot dates record is just great i mean it's a it's such a Thank great you. power pop record it's it sounds great and the songs are great and yeah it's and it's just i've i've interviewed more than 20 people so far now and uh but one thing i really wanted to do i'm trying to make a series of episodes kind of tracing the evolution of power pop maybe something like that but um mm-hmm. one thing i really wanted to do is talk to people from some of my favorite records that whenever you see some list of the best power pop or somebody writes a book about power pop this the ones that it always pisses me off that they're not mentioned <laughs> you know and hot dates is yeah. definitely one that i would put on my list of one of the the best oh, power pop great. records yeah that's great thank you that it was um i remember at the time uh rick cassock from the cars uh was at a show i think in um st louis and i have a cousin that um uh is, was younger than me by maybe 10 years and, and a good-looking young blonde lady and she was um you know trying to meet rock stars and do hairdos and uh working for chanel and you know doing a little modeling and stuff like that anyway she managed to to get backstage to see rick and he had just come, they had just come out with, um, uh, oh God, I've forgotten the name of the record, but it had Shake shake It Up or something on it. Um, maybe that was an end of the yeah, record. Yeah, that's the name of that record, but, yeah. Okay, yeah. And that was out at the same time that the Hot Dates record was out. And so in, when she met him, she says, oh, I got a, a cousin from Boston, uh, Jeff Root. And he says, oh, I know Jeff. And he says he's got a great record out. So, that, you know, that was uh, something I always remember that, you know, he wouldn't have told me that in the club when I when I saw him. He was hanging out with B.B. Buell at the time. And, you know, she played at a couple of the clubs that we were playing at, and he was there. And uh, and then I got backstage to talk with him and the rest of the guys at uh, the Hartford Civic Center. But, you know, you never really complimented a competing guy, you know, directly. It was always, uh, you know, something that you heard, you know, through, through the great pot or something. But <laughs> yeah. anyways, that was, that was a big thrill. I remember at the time, it, it was a lot of fun and, uh, it was certainly a lot of fun crafting the tunes and arranging them with those guys. One, uh, great thing that was added to us was, um, Wayne Wadhams uh, came in with that whole producer's ear, yeah. uh, like the George Martin kind of guy. We arranged a few of the tunes that were a little bit looser. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of them in particular was uh, Do You Want Me, which was written by my friend uh, Bob Millette. And when we originally came in with our demo, um, I forget the exact way that it was, but it didn't start with something that was as strong as what we ended up with on the record. It was um, maybe more of a, like a drum intro with a, a keyboard thing that was kind of interesting, but it didn't hit you over the head. And so he said, well, why don't you take this section and put this here and put this one over here? And so he um, rearranged it into something that you know really worked well. Uh, and he did that with a, with several of them. You know, it was greatly appreciated. He also, with 
help the keyboard guy and the, the soloist, you know, define something that would be a little bit more stringent or, um, you know, uh, fitting into the arrangement a little bit tighter. And you get everybody thinking that way. So whether, you know, at first, like, he was like making these obvious suggestions and we would just do it. But after we understood what he was saying, then we started going, you know, and before we got to the studio, we'd be doing that kind of a, that kind of thinking on it. You know, like, you know, what if we started it with something that, you know, really hit you over the head and grabbed you uh, versus um, starting with a verse, you know, let's start with a chorus or something like that. So he was um, a great influence and a great collaborator. And some of uh, the other thing is we, we went in with a couple of demos that we had done at his studio. And that's where we actually heard it. We heard one of our tunes called Moonlighter. Thought, oh, that's that's great. That's a great record, a great song, or whatever. That was one of the ones that he also uh, decided he wanted to uh, fix up. I think that one, instead of re-recording it, he wanted to fix it up. So he actually went in with a razor blade and found where there was like um, there needed to be a quarter of an inch taken out of the whole tape in order to tighten something up where, you know, we were uh, coming in a little bit uh, looser on the downbeat of a particular measure, he'd actually go in with a razor blade <laughs> and make an edit and just tighten the whole thing up. Uh, and he was very rhythm conscious. So, you know, when we would actually be recording things from scratch, uh, he'd be in the uh, standing in the middle of the studio uh, clapping his hands uh, to, you know, just make sure that we were being conducted, uh, so to speak, so that we weren't straying off the rhythm and, um, you know, those kind of things. And, um, also a couple of really cool sonic tricks he, he did like George Martin would do with, um, uh, equalization on a piano part to make it really stand out and actually not sound like a piano, but sound like some synthesized thing by, you know, bringing up 5k frequency and, and killing everything else and all of a sudden it sounded like wow that's a really cool synth sound but it was just him playing the piano you know? so yeah anyways it was, that was the other part as he was um a big factor on the production of, of that record and why it came out sounding so polished and um professional uh if you had heard the demos of some of those songs Previously, you would have said, "Wow, they get a lot of promise," but um, it wouldn't have hit you over the head and impressed you as much, you know. So, yeah, it seems like you were really lucky to have a such a good producer. And it must have had a really small budget to make the record. What was Boston Skyline? What was that record label? Uh, that was actually his record label. Okay. He had, um, yeah, Boston Skyline, and there was another. Name. He had two labels, and I've forgotten the name of the other one. Uh, he passed away in 2008, but he and I stayed in touch all the years between uh, 82 and, and 2008. You know, still talked uh, possibilities and ways to shop things and stuff like that. He was also, um, since he'd had some success in the past, he knew people in the business, and um, so he knew uh publishers and A&R people and all of that. So not only was he an excellent producer, but he was a great 
a sort of business manager for us at the time. And we sort of used him like that for a while. But anyways, yeah, that was, um, he was definitely a, a big part of uh, why that record and why our single came out so great. Yeah. So, it's funny, the way that Boston Skyline is written on the album cover, it makes it seem like it's the album title. <laughs> it's, oh, right, yeah. yeah. Especially yeah, with the no. with the the picture on the cover, don't you have a, yeah, you have like a skyline behind you, so that even makes it more, seem more like yeah. that's the album yeah. title. <laughs> yeah, my wife, my wife, my wife took that picture and the, uh, the picture from the single, I don't know if you've seen that, but it's also a, a skyline kind of picture. The, um, the one on the album was taken uh, in the north end looking towards, you know, the big buildings and all of that uh, in Copley Square. So my, my drummer, Grant, uh, and his uh, girlfriend at the time uh, had an apartment someplace in the north end, and we just went up to the roof and um, posed with the, um, the skyline behind us. And uh, so there was no, in those days, you know, you, you didn't do as much doctoring or anything like that. I think the only thing we did was the high contrast uh, development of that particular film so that it would, you know, look stark and, and dramatic, you know, whatever. Yeah, the record you is know. a great mix because you've got, I, I mean, some of these songs are absolutely classic power pop songs like The Heart of You, Until She Goes. Those are just, those stand right up with anyth- anything else from the genre. To me, but then you've got yeah. like, you've got like "I Must Fight" and "Shut Up" that you've mentioned, which are, you know, more like punky kind of songs. They're also great, but they're yeah. so it's a great mix to it. So you know, just all the way through the record, it, it almost feels like one long song, but you know, in a great way. It's like there's nothing, there's no skippable track. You know, it's a it's a really quality yeah. album. Yeah, well, I appreciate that. That's that's great. Yeah, the um, uh, I Must Fight was written by my uh, friend Bob. He and I were trying to do that Lennon-McCartney thing where we put our name on all the songs, mm-hmm. and I think we actually co-wrote uh, Tune In To Me, but the others, um, um, most of them at, on that particular record were mine, I think six of them. And uh, I Must Fight was um, Bob's, and... Uh, the thrill I need, and do you want me where his, and uh, the rest, the rest were mine at, at the time, uh, except tune in to me was a, a co-write. Yeah, thank you very much. I, I really appreciate your your interest and your and your good words, and uh, and uh, hopefully I've given you enough um, information. Mm-hmm. 